Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan. So it is Monday evening, July the 11th, um, just off of a, a pretty, uh, a, like a, I guess a marathon episode. I think we got something short and sweet for the, uh, for the folks out there this week. What are we talking about and who are we talking with? A little short, but definitely sweet. We are thrilled this week. We're going to welcome James, Jamie Kerchick onto the program. He for those of you who don't know him and, and we'll do a full introduction of him when he comes on, but he is a national writer and reporter uh, recently just came out with a book, uh, secret city, the, the hidden history of gay Washington that we're going to talk about in depth. Um, but we're, we're thrilled. Like I, I'll say, I'll say this at the end of the interview, but he is coming off a week where he was on good morning America and, and Bill Maher and watch what happens live. And he took some time out to, to join our little podcast here, which, which we are thrilled about. So um, we're going we're to talk to, to Jamie about his book, about the history of, of gay people in Washington, about how gay people operate in Washington today and how they operate in our society today. Is he scared of, um, potentially any any gay rights backsliding given some recent cultural phenomenons that seem to have come up and, and cropped up recently. We also talked to him about some of his predictions that he made in his first book about Europe, many of which unfortunately have come true. Talked to him about the his feelings on the state of media and, and the press today. So we actually going gonna get into like a, a wide range of issues and he is an expert on all of them. So Again, we are really lucky that he joined us, and we hope for all of our listeners out there that you enjoy his hearing from him as much as we enjoy talking with him. Yeah, certainly has a unique perspective that is really rooted in an understanding of history, which, like the two of us, we're both history buffs, but he's on another uh, another planet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we 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 might love history as much as he does, but he has spent like the last what, 15 years devoting his life to like researching and reporting and like actually doing the work of, of history. So a, a little bit different levels of, of expertise there. Um, before, so we're gonna get right into the interview. But uh, before we do, just a quick reminder that this podcast is brought to you by those hardworking guys over at Cannon Hill Woodworking. You know that they've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two N's. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. So if you are interested in a nice piece of furniture that is custom made for you, um, give them a shout uh, here in Boston. Yeah. And maybe, Brennan, next time you'll get, get us a new fun tagline. I feel like we've been missing one last two weeks here. <laughs> All right. I'll get that together for you. All right. Well, let, let, let's talk to Jane. All right, we are now thrilled to welcome James, Jamie Kerchick uh, onto the program. We know Jamie because he went to the same high school as Ricky and I, but he was a few years older and I was joking with him just before he came on it. He was the guy, all, all of us had done Model UN, but he was kind of the big wig when, when Ricky and I were just getting our feet wet in Model UN. So he was the guy that we had to get our papers approved by before we could send them in. So uh, we've come a, a little bit of a ways since then, but it's, it's great to talk to you again, Jamie. Thanks so much for, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Yeah, we said uh, this is the biggest guest we've had since we had your brother Jeff on about a year ago. Well, I hope I can uh, live up to his uh, reputation. <laughs> well, we'll, we'll see. Uh, but the reason that I had reached out is, so I guess I'll give a brief uh, background on, on Jamie for people that don't know who he is. So like I said, he went to the same high school, Roxbury Latin with uh, Ricky and I, and then went off to Yale. After that, he 
he's a reporter and a writer and he has he worked for the new republic as a reporter then he went over and worked for radio free europe in prague and has worked as a reporter and written for a, a bunch of different organizations, including the New York Daily News, the Washington Examiner. He worked for the Foreign Policy Initiative for a little bit in the Brookings Institute. Um, but the reason that I, I reached out just a few weeks ago to see if you wanted to join us was that just last month, he wrote a new book, his second book. Um, and this book's called The Secret, it's called Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. And that's primarily what I want to talk about. I actually want to talk about the first book for a couple of minutes later in the interview mm -hmm. when we have time but um so to start with it again it's called secret city the hidden history of gay washington and so be curious like why you decided to write this book at all and why you decided to write it now um well i have always been interested in cold war history and uh 20th century american political history and uh, I live and work in Washington, and I came to understand that in that period of time, uh, the form of power in Washington was secrets. Secrets determined your power uh, in the same way that, you know, fame or celebrity determines your status in Hollywood or money determines your status in New York in Washington during this period of time, secrecy uh, was really the main form of power and maybe still is. And I came to understand that there was no greater secret in the nation's capital during this period of time than homosexuality, that this could destroy a career. Um, it could lead people to commit suicide. It was just the most powerful uh, most devastating charge that existed in the, you know, arsenal of political weaponry. And I figured that this would be a uh, exciting subject to explore and no one had done it yet. Uh, and so I decided to do it. So makes a ton of sense in your reporting, in your research, what struck you the most, if anything? I'm sure there's the, some of the stuff you were probably aware of and you just fleshed out your knowledge of, but is there anything that like in doing your research you weren't aware of that struck you? Oh, there were many things, many, many things. I mean, I didn't, I mean, really almost everything in the book came as new to me. Um, I didn't know that uh, FDRs, just going chronologically, I didn't know that FDR's number two um, man in the State Department, a man named Sumner Wells, a brilliant diplomat. Um, I didn't know that he had been basically forced to resign because he was gay. Um, and this was really the first time that that had happened in, in the U.S. government. Um, I didn't really know that the role that World War II played in basically making this secret of homosexuality so powerful because it was the fear that gay people could be blackmailed. That was basically the justification um, for the fear uh, of gay people in government. I didn't know that there had been a rivalry, that, that some of the basis of the rivalry between the CIA and the FBI had a lot to do with homosexuality, that the FBI was using accusations of homosexuality against spies and people working for the CIA in the early years of the Cold War. Um, I didn't know that Jack Kennedy had so many gay male friends uh, and was sort of unique in that regard as an American president. Um, I didn't know that Richard Nixon was so obsessed with homosexuality. And you can, I, something I discovered li listening to the White House tapes, was something that he would speak at great length about and often conspiratorial tones. I didn't understand the extent to which the Reagans, not just Ronald, but his wife, Nancy, um, had a lot of gay men in their orbit as friends, as political advisors, uh, and that there was a real fear um, that they would be seen as being too friendly to gay people. And this, this might have even had a role in their um, stance uh, on the AIDS crisis. So, yeah, I mean, I just learned a lot writing this book, I knew, I thought I knew 
I thought I knew a lot going into it, but I think when you write a book, you discover how little you actually do know. Well, it's a good pitch for anybody to to read it. Just <laughs> that like overall summary that you just gave there of like, you just touched on so many things that are interesting. Yeah. So two things that you said that I want to follow up on. One, you noted that you organized the book chronologically and yeah. that it starts like 1940, right? With FDR, World War II yeah. and continues through the end of the 20th century. So I guess and you mentioned this briefly, like why do you choose those dates? Why start at World War II and FDR and why end in 99 and the Clinton administration? And why structure it chronologically? Was it more just to see how the like, treatment of gays in Washington evolved over time? Was that kind of the thinking? Well, choosing to do it starting World War II, there's a real logical reason for this, because that is when homosexuality basically transforms or evolves from being not just a sin or a medical condition and a crime, which it was. It becomes a national security threat. And it's for that reason I said earlier, which is that America is entering World War II. It's becoming a global superpower. It starts, it has to create a civilian intelligence agency, which it hadn't had until Mm -hmm. World War II. And so the collection and the managing of secrets becomes very important. This This whole concept of national security, that doesn't really even become a concept until World War II. You know, the National Security Council isn't founded until after the war the national security advisor isn't created as a job until after the war. Right. So all these concepts we have about national security, it all begins in world war II. And that is when the homosexual, the idea, right. Becomes this sort of public villain, this, this threat um, because he can be supposedly because he can be blackmailed. So that's why I started it there. And the reason I end with the Clinton administration is because in 1995, Bill Clinton uh, lifts the ban on gay people being able to receive security clearances. That didn't happen until 1995. And so those seemed like kind of logical bookends yeah. for this subject. And the reason I did it chronologically was because I wanted to tell a story and I wanted to show the evolution over time and how this conception uh, of homosexuality changed over time. Um, and I divided it by presidencies because I think as, as Americans, we we like to do that. We like we're, we we like learning about presidents, and we we and we we organize our history by presidential administrations, right? There's the FDR era, there's the Eisenhower era, there's Camelot, right? There's LBJ and the Great Society. There's that's this is how how we're kind of used to doing it. And when you're writing a kind of a book of popular history for a for a general audience, which I was doing with this book, that just seemed like the most natural way to go about it. All right, uh, so. Well, while the book leaves off in 95, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on the progress since then. So you you, ne- you mentioned that Clinton lifts uh, the ban on security clearances in 95, and you have the legalization of gay marriage first in the states like Massachusetts in the early 2000s, and then you have obviously it becoming national with the Supreme Court's decision on Obergefell. Yeah. And there's kind of all this progress. You have someone like a Pete Buttigieg who is able to be a leading candidate as an openly gay man for president and had a, a real legitimate shot there for a while. And that's something that you know was probably impossible a decade ago, let alone two or three decades ago. And so you, you have all of this progress in a lot of ways, but certainly in the last few years, while there has been this more, this rise, particularly on the right of whatever you want to call it, like Christian nationalism, you've had a backlash against transgender people in particular, but it's, it's not far to, to think that there could be some backsliding in terms of like civil rights and, and how, how people of all um, genders and sexualities are being treated in, in our society. So like, where do you, as you step back now and look at uh, the ability of, of homosexuals to participate in our society and in our government, what, what are you kind of thinking today? I'm actually quite optimistic. And if you look at the broad sweep of history that I write about in this book, I mean, to go from, like I said, in the 1930s, when homosexuality was a crime in 50 states, it was, a, it was medically pathologized by the medical establishment, and it was condemned as a sin from the pulpit of every major religious denomination, which is not even to say how, how it was referred to in the media. Basically, the entire American establishment, all of American society, condemned homosexuality. It was literally the worst thing you could possibly be, was to be gay. 
And to go from that to where we are now, it's just an incredibly dramatic, positive transformation in public attitudes. That while I, there is something of a backlash, yes, we're seeing in the past year or so, mostly directed against transgenderism, I think. I don't think this is really affecting gay people. Um, I'm not all that worried about it because if you look at the younger generations, they're much more open-minded about this than the older generations. Um, polls show for the first time last year that a majority of Republicans support gay marriage. That hadn't happened before until last year. And I just don't see um, there being the conditions for, for the future. Uh, uh, I don't think that the recent decision decision their explicit gay marriage decision. Um, and there's still gay marriage uh, in the way that there has been for abortion. I mean, this has been a, a goal of the conservative legal movement for 50 years. They've been very explicit about this. And public opinion has not changed on abortion fundamentally since 1973. It is a uh, really the most divisive social issue in the country. So uh, for all those reasons, I'm not, I'm not concerned that there, that there will be a legal um, regression when it comes to gay equality. I guess, I guess that's interesting because to me, that means that you sort of see sort of the social arc of progress as, as more or less linear. Um, and I guess I wonder how you think about that in terms of, you know, you pick 1940s as a time where people's sexual preferences were being weaponized against them sort of more overtly, whereas obviously pre-1940s, the situation was not good. But it seemed like there was a tacit understanding that homosexuals existed, but as long as they weren't public about it, we sort of didn't speak about it. I wonder how you think about in terms of, because I think about this often, like, does society kind of progress in this linear fashion, or are we prone to making these corrections and then? Well, it's not directly linear. It goes kind of two, like one step forward, maybe two steps back, then three steps forward, right? So it's over the core, and I'm bad at math and all this stuff, so I'm not know what the terms are, but over the long haul, it's linear or it's moving in the right direction, but it's kind of a zigzag, right? So World War II was actually uh, a kind of period of openness. You had a lot of gay people in the military meeting each other for the first time. Um, on the home front, kind of social mores were becoming more liberal, uh, and cities were developing these kinds of gay, you know, undergrounds and whatnot. But then the 1950s become this really terrible um, re re repressive period with McCarthyism. And there's a whole lavender scare that accompanies the red scare. And it's, it's in reaction to that openness that we saw in World War II, right? And then you have the Stonewall uprising in 1969. In the early years of the 1970s, you have gay liberation. You have Harvey Milk. You have lots of gay people coming out of the closet. But then there's a backlash. There's an, an Anita Bryant, who's this gospel singer who wages this, you know, national campaign to repeal anti-discrimination laws protecting gay people in cities across the country. And she's victorious. And you have the rise of the Christian right. And you have the Reagan administration and AIDS. And so it goes back. Right. And then in the 90s, you have a lot of progress. You have Bill Clinton lifting the ban on gay people receiving security clearances. You have Ellen DeGeneres coming out on national television. That's a huge deal. You have a lot of kind of cultural visibility for gay people. But then in the early 2000s, you have President George W. Bush trying to enshrine an amendment banning gay marriage in the Constitution. And then it goes back and then, and then Obama comes into office and you have uh, more progress. And then you have Obergefell and gay rights. So I see it over time. It's positive. Right now, we're in a period of sort of backlash, a kind of right-wing cultural backlash to, to, to some of this. But if you look at the grand sweep of history, I think it's moving in a positive direction. To transition actually to, from your most recent book to your first book, which you wrote, yeah. it's called The End of Europe. It was in 2017. Um, I think 
I first, this might've been an excerpt, but I saw an article that you wrote, I think it was published in like foreign policy. Maybe it was yeah. just like an excerpt from your book or just like an article based on your book, but it was Ricky, I don't know if you read it. If not, I'll send it to you after. First of all, everyone should go read this article. Cause so Jamie wrote this article in 2017 and it was kind of like Europe's worst fears. And the article opens uh, now I got to pull it up. And so it's called the article opens and the first sentence is again, written in 2017. The first sentence is May 9th, 2022. Standing on the viewing platform in Red Square, President Vladimir Putin observed the military parade commemorating the 77th anniversary of the Soviet Union's defeat of Nazi Germany. This victory day, he had reason to be especially proud of his country. And it pretty much goes into like Jamie predicts that Russia would have invaded Estonia and NATO wouldn't have done anything to stop it. Obviously, Russia instead invaded Ukraine. But for all of these reasons, the United States, NATO hasn't really stepped in to to stop that, although you can argue they've certainly mitigated things and Estonia is different than Ukraine for many yeah. different reasons. But I, I, it's just like an, it's an eerie and incredibly prescient article. And obviously your book is based on, you have an entire book based on that. So I, how has it been for you as someone that maybe saw a lot of this coming and not that you got all of it right, but you, you certainly identified like these trends that were happening across Europe that led to destabilization in a, in a lot of the region. So how has it been for you now in 2022, looking at all of these, these situations, whether it's in France or in the UK or Hungary or Greece or whatever, and um, just kind of like, what are your thoughts on, on everything that's happening in Europe? Well, I think actually in that article, I did, it was sort of a futuristic near, like, like a near future piece of speculative fiction. almost. Yeah. I think I did predict that the Russians also invaded Ukraine in, in addition to Estonia. I'd have to go back and check. Um, I mean, I'm not pleased that I've been prescient on these things, obviously. Um, and really all I was doing in that book was reporting what I was being told by people in Central and Eastern Europe, by Estonians, Latvians, Lithuanians. You know, I lived in Prague. I worked for Radio Free Europe. And I was there at this important time where it was the very early years of what was called the reset policy of the Obama administration. Um, after the war in Georgia in 2008, the invasion of Georgia, the Obama administration was trying to reset relations with Russia. And um, basically it was a form of appeasement. I mean, it was, it was basically overlooking what happened in Georgia, not sanctioning them over it, um, removing some... Uh, missile defense sites in Poland and the Czech Republic um, and really just trying to have a rapprochement with the Russians and kind of working over the heads of our allies in Central and Eastern Europe. And they warned very early on that this was a bad step, that Putin had imperial ambitions, that the way to respond to him was through strength. And that's all that he really understood and that anything less would invite more aggression. And that's what I was documenting. And that's what I was seeing in my own reporting throughout the former Soviet space over those years. Uh, and shortly after I moved back to the United States, um, the Russians invaded Crimea and annexed Crimea. Uh, and it was around that time that I decided that I probably should write a book and kind of put all these experiences between um, two covers. And it wasn't just Russian aggression. Now, that was the main theme of the book. I also talked about anti-Semitism, the rise of anti-Semitism, the kind of neutralism of Germany and their inability to kind of assume the responsibilities of being a great power um, and the disintegration of the EU as seen through Brexit. Um, And unfortunately, I think most of these negative phenomena that I was documenting have all just kind of exacerbated they've gotten worse um obviously the you know russia has proven to everyone um that they are not keen on the post-cold war settlement uh and are uh really do have a a neo-imperialist expansionist policy um the Germans, despite, you know, early reports that they were uh, assuming a better leadership role and a tougher position, 
on Russia uh, are not really standing up to those early um, hopes. Um, the failure to wean themselves off of Russian energy has been a huge problem. And again, something that our friends in Central and Eastern Europe were warning about. And these, these um, warnings went by unheeded. So I haven't been following Europe as closely as I used to, just because I was so busy working on this other book the past couple of years, but I don't like to say I told you so, but I kind of (laughs) did. Yeah. I think one of the things that you've talked about in the context of Russia, but in journalism in, in general is sort of the, I don't know if you would call it the rise of propaganda, but sort of the force of, of propaganda. And I, think about that a lot in kind of the context of, you know, how Donald Trump would characterize the media during his rise. And obviously, you know, they're kind of coming at it from two different sides of the spectrum. One is controlling and the other is like antagonistic. But um, I guess this is something that Brennan and I often talk about is where to get news from in light of, um, how this works. And then if I'm, I'm going to hit you with a two-part question, because in, in your recent article uh, in the, in the Washington post, you're discussing uh, the outing of uh, Senator Walsh, uh, David mm. from Massachusetts. And one of the things that you talked about was the role that FDR played in sort of the direction of the New York post. And so I guess we think a lot about sort of press manipulation in our current context as like, you know, uh, we lament sort of the lack of ob- objectivity in the press and we almost romanticize a historical press that may have been yeah. objective, but it's, that may not, I mean, it sounds like it wasn't the case. So I'm curious both from a historical perspective, but also kind of your current uh, perspective, how do you view the media and, uh, and where do you get your news? Yeah. So this sort of ideal of, of objectivity that we have is really a kind of post-war um ideal. Uh, and it was really a post-war reality. Prior to that, you know, first of all, most cities had multiple newspapers and those newspapers were explicitly uh, affiliated, if not with a political ideology, then often with a political party itself and oftentimes factions within that political party, right? So you would have like liberal Republican newspapers uh, and maybe more conservative Republican or conservative Democratic paper. And, the, and everyone knew what what they were doing. They were fairly explicit. Um, After the war, this notion of objectivity and sort of standing above politics and partisanship, that becomes an ideal. We see this through the rise of television and there are three major network news networks, NBC, ABC, CBS. And it's this whole kind of, you know, Walter Cronkite and, and he's, you know, supposedly he was quite liberal, but he had a reputation for being, down the middle, neutral and whatnot. Um, And I think we are now returning to that sort of pre-World War II or really almost 19th century um, dispensation. Um, I would like it if we had, if our mainstream media or our prestige media really was objective and if they really did want to hear from both sides. I just, unfortunately, that's just not the case. And I don't see how anyone can really seriously claim that the mainstream media is not left of center. How left of center it is is up for debate, but it clearly is left of center. Um, I personally get my news mostly from the Wall Street Journal, which has a, a conservative editorial page, and that's unabashed, obvious. But I actually think their news pages are really stellar. Uh, and their news pages in a way that the New York Times or the Washington Post just don't anymore. They really just they don't really even try, in my opinion, to be fair. Uh, I find the Wall Street Journal news section is scrupulously fair. They don't try to um, spin the news in a particular direction. For instance, like they don't they don't like they, they I don't I don't they it was part of their editorial policy not to refer to the pre, to President Trump's lies. They would say what they would they would quote what he said and they would quote maybe what the truth was, but they didn't feel the necessity to tell you that he was lying. They thought that their readers 
They understand that their readers are smart enough to decide for themselves how they will judge what a politician is saying. It seemed with, when Trump came along, it was as if he was treated as, as if he was the first politician who ever lied. You know, newspapers didn't refer to the president as a liar before until Donald Trump. All presidents have lied. I, I agree that Trump did it far more frequently and more brazenly than any president before him. But to my mind, that did not justify changing the standards of media and how they covered him. They, the mainstream media decided that Donald Trump, because he was this different, unique, you know, he was, he was, he was unique and different in many ways, right? He was the first president never to have held elective office or served in the military. He was unique in having been a television celebrity prior to becoming president. He was unique in all these different ways. The mainstream media decided that their standards and their practices would change because of that. And I think it was for the worse. And you only have to look at public trust in media. I think Gallup just came out with their, or the Knight Center, one of the major polling institutions came out. The public trust in mainstream media is at a historic low. I think it's only Congress has let do is, is, is less. Okay. And a lot of people in the main, a lot of my colleagues in the mainstream media refuse to look in the mirror and ask why that is. They think it's just because the American, they think it's because of this disinformation, right? As if there's never been disinformation or propaganda or lies in American history. It all just started when Donald Trump became president. It's just total hogwash. And this is the reason why someone, someone like Joe Rogan, who's an MMA announcer and a comedian, has 14 million listeners, which is five times as many subscribers as the New York Times, four times as many. It's a lot more than the Washington Post or the New York Times combined. And a lot of people in the mainstream media, they lament this and they try to take him down. Right? They tried to destroy him multiple times because he had some you know, COVID vaccine deniers or whatever on his show. Um, and they don't see the reason is because people don't trust them anymore. And so they're seeking alternative sources of information. And unfortunately, a lot of times those alternative sources of information are not going to be very trustworthy or scrupulous, or it might be an, an MMA commentator like Joe Rogan. Um, and this is just the new media environment we live in. It's very fractured. People get their information from different sources and it's, and it's difficult. It's not, it's not like it used to be in the 1960s where there were, you know, two or three national newspapers and three national networks and every city had, you know, two or three newspapers. It's a very fractured media environment and it's, it's a challenge to live in a democracy when people can't agree on a common set of facts or there are just different facts matter to different people, right? Like if you watch Fox News or read the Wall Street Journal, it's like inflation, inflation, inflation. That's what matters. If you read the New York Times, it's the overturning of Roe versus Wade. That's the most important news story. And these are just different, you know, different concerns that different people have. The problem is, is I think that the Democratic Party has become beholden to this sort of narrow, upper middle class, white, progressive um, electorate or, or constituency that is frankly out of touch with the rest of the country. And I think this is why you're seeing Joe Biden is now the most unpopular president in American history. He's more unpopular than Trump was at his lowest. Uh, and I think it's because the media that they read does not speak to the country. The media they read speaks to the people who read the New York Times, right? Or who watch MSNBC and CNN, people who live in urban areas or university towns, right? These kind of blue islands in a sea of red. And this is why, you know, the Democrats are going to get wiped out in November. And there's really nothing they can do about it. At this point, it's probably too late for them to do anything about it. I think something, well, I guess I, I have two follow-ups to that. One, um, because you talked about sort of the pre-1900s when media was explicitly party-focused and biased to sort of spoon-feed people what they already were feeling, perhaps. 
and then you know maybe we had this transition in the 40s and 50s but now we're maybe regressing to sort of that pre-19th century state i wonder you know your sort of long-term view since we're doing a little bit of the the long-term arc is this something that cons i mean obviously for us living today it's very concerning in terms of how we're going to function as a democracy it's it it seems almost impossible to get anything done when as you said people can't even agree on the same uh, a common set of facts to work off of um mm -hmm. yeah well maybe we'll start there like how do you see this playing out uh i'm concerned i think it's um well i don't think we well it's really hard to predict um we have a federalist system and ideally a federalist system would allow for more local control and allow for certain states to experiment with certain policies, right? Some states can be more conservative. Some states can be more liberal. Um, and I think that to me is the ideal system. That's the system that our founders intended. Uh, it's one of the reasons why I'm not freaking out about the overturning of Roe versus Wade, because I think while I personally support abortion rights, I don't think that they are constitutionally protected. And I think that Roe versus Wade was poorly decided. And I think it created 50 years of, you know, political divisiveness that really hurt our political system and that returning it to the States while unfortunate for the women who live in States and may need abortions that where they will now be illegal um, I think that this is the right legal outcome and will ultimately had it been, had they never decided in the first place would have uh, not been a major national political issue in the way it has been for the past 50 years. Um, on the other hand, the worst case scenario is that it, you know, leads to some kind of cold civil war, not an, not a hot one, not an armed one but a cold civil war where states don't recognize the authority of the federal governments. If they don't like, you know, if they don't like what the federal government does, municipalities might not recognize the power of the state government. Um, I think that's, that's a problem. And that's, that's what I fear most. I don't fear like a, you know, a fascist takeover by Donald Trump. That to me is very unlikely, even in on January 6th, it was an incredible, you know, as much as, as, as much as an outrage and, a, and an insult and a crime that it was, the, it, there, there was no real possibility of Donald Trump taking over power in, in a coup. I mean, the military was against him. A coup, and the, the necessary element for a coup is to have the support of the military. Also, the first step in a coup is you have to take over the media. Uh, and he had, I mean, how was that going to happen? The entire media was against him and is still against him. Um, so I'm much more concerned about like civil breakdown and just the inability of Americans to get along with one another and to respect each other and to respect each other's political differences. It seems that a lot of people have this kind of totalizing expectations and that if you don't agree with them on everything, you are an enemy. Um, and being able to live with disagreement, I think, is the sign of a, being a healthy adult. And it's the sign of a healthy country. And right now, we're, right now, we're not a very healthy country. We, we might steal that as the new tagline for our gentlemen's disagreements. <laughs> All right. So we, we've kept you past the time that I said we were. I guess uh, curious for you. Uh, right now, you're doing the promotion for the book. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you'll continue to do that throughout the summer. But what's what's next for you politically? Do you already have, do you already have your eyes? I mean, not politically, professionally. Like, what do you have? Do you have your eyes on another project already or is it just mostly like, I just want to focus on the promotion. We'll see what happens after and take a little break. But what do you think the future holds for you, the near future at least? Um, I have lots of ideas ranging from other books to screenplay to a theatrical play, um, teleplays. So I have lots of ideas. It's just a matter of deciding what to do next. Yeah. So I'm, I'm not lacking in the ideas department. That's fair. All right. And so finally, want to just do a, a quick pitch for anyone listening out there. Why should they go out and get and order uh, Secret City, the hidden history of, of gay Washington? Well, like I said, Washington is a city of secrets and none was more 
dangerous than that of the ones that I discuss and reveal in my book. All right, look at that. That's like that's an that's a guy that has an elevator pitch, Ricky. <laughs> so, uh, Jamie, we appreciate it. We know like you've been on with George Stephanopoulos on Good Morning America and Bill Maher, and uh, you were on with uh, Watch What Happens Live with Andy Cohen just last night, I think. Um, and so, we appreciate you taking some time to to talk with with Ricky and I. We it's it's been a pleasure. Absolutely. Any anything for RL. I love that. One true school. <laughs> See you guys. All right. Thanks, Jamie. Thanks. Yeah. So once again, a big uh, thank you to, to Jamie for joining us. Um, I mean, it was is just a really insightful discussion on all yeah all sorts of things starting starting with his book definitely but um I think I was you know really struck by some of the some of his understanding of kind of where the media is today and where he sees things going and it's yeah surprisingly like both at times like pessimistic and optimistic it's um it's an interesting uh view did you have any instant reactions yeah, well, first of all, I want to go read the book myself. I, I think it's for, as we said, like lovers of history like us, this is a history that I definitely don't know enough about. And quite honestly, I don't think that you and I have talked enough about, like in, in general. I would say I'd like know nothing about it. Yeah. Right. But I thought it was it was interesting. Even him, I was kind of thinking that he was going to be like, oh, this particular thing stood out to me that I had no idea of on, on the history. Or I knew this, but then when I did some research, it was so much bigger or different than I thought but for him to come out and say that almost everything in the book was like new and surprising to him I think that just shows like one the depth of his research but two how for lack of a better word like how secret and how hidden all of all of these things were and I you know this is again maybe a fault of of you and I not talking about uh, like like gay history or or kind of like gay rights and, and those type of things on our our podcast enough but there just isn't a lot, there aren't a lot of figures that you can point to or even events. Like we, we celebrate Pride Month in June just in general, but I feel like now that we have like Juneteenth and we have Martin Luther King Day and there are, there are people and figures that you can point to in like Black history, for example, that we don't necessarily celebrate the same way in gay history. And so and I think it's for a lot of the reasons that Jamie said, it was like this through through the 90s and even in certain areas of this country continuing into the 21st century, that this was one of the most dangerous secrets, one of the most dangerous identities that someone could have. And that's, there's a reason that we maybe don't know enough about those things. Like, like, I think you and I could talk about Stonewall if we, like, if we wanted to, and uh, those general sorts of things, but uh, yeah, I guess like that was my, my first big takeaway of like, that's just an area of history that I want to know more about. And so I'm probably going to go get that book. Uh, maybe do a little, little summer reading. Um, I thought it was interesting that when I had asked about his views on like gay people in society today, and I had mentioned that was he worried about potential like backsliding of of gay rights? He, he pretty much dismissed that as as no. Like not to say that there aren't you know, con- some concerns out there, but as as he noted, as I noted too, it, those the angst on the right has largely been directed at trans people as opposed to gay people. And he pointed out correctly that how much, while there was this battle over, and for people that are younger than us, I don't, they won't even remember this, which is crazy, but there was a battle in the early 2000s over gay marriage and whether or not it was going to be allowed. And when Massachusetts did it, it was super controversial. And then as Jamie alluded to, like there was this thing called DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, that under the Bush administration in in Congress at the time was pushing to enshrine this, that marriage was only going to be defined as between a man and a woman. And that was, that was less than 20 years ago. And to think how much, as you know, like younger generations, but just really societally where like, it's, it's just become accepted to the point where again, like a Buttigieg figure can be an openly gay man running for president and have like a, le- a legitimate shot at it. And I, I think uh, it's, it's crazy how quickly it has just uh, become 
just so the kind of like part, just another part of someone's identity in like the way that it always should have been. But it's, it's, uh, I think that's interesting to sit back and think about, but I guess the last thing I'll say before throwing it to you is uh, yeah, I, I thought it was interesting that he is because he's seen such societal progress. He feels comfortable being like, I'm not worried about the status of gays in society. I'm not worried about gay rights in the same way that people that argue for trans rights or argue for abortion rights have more legitimate concerns. So I, I just thought um, the, the differentiating between all those issues was, I agree with him, but I thought it was interesting. Yeah. I'm a little bit surprised that you didn't bring up uh, Thomas's opinion to see it, see if that had any. Well, he like preempted me. He, he was pretty much like, uh, yeah, I don't think that's going to be an issue because it's different. Yeah. Yeah, he said it was different primarily because he felt like public opinion is uh, was so far in in one direction versus what he viewed as a more like a toss up question of the Roe v. Wade. I mean, I think personally, I would have been curious about you know the fact that he said that despite his personal um, feelings on abortion access, um, that he thought that the decision was correct um because i still think you like despite public opinion you could say the same thing about a burgerfeld and other opinions that have basically used the exact same reasoning and so yeah like the fact that and as he noted kind of just our progress in terms of a society has not been linear and he talked about sort of the liberalization in the late 40s and early 50s and then that you know the quick snapback under McCarthyism and then the, again the liberalization in the 60s and 70s and then again a, you know an about face under Reagan um, that he you know wouldn't be concerned that public opinion I mean I am certainly hopeful that he's absolutely that he's right on this issue and based on who I know and what I like personally feel like I I would tend to agree but there are you know i would also be naive to say that there aren't parts of the country that i really just don't know and i don't understand and to think that that they couldn't at some point take us take over a state house and with the supreme court the way it is like i in personally speaking i i would i think i would feel a little less confident but um he's the historian so (laughs) Yeah. And then I did think his stuff about the press and I was appreciative of you asking the question and pushing him on it where it is, I, you said it well, and we've said this before of like the rose colored glasses, but like those rose colored glasses, I think are understandable because the time our parents and grandparents grew up in, and the time when we were younger, that's the, that's the media that that's kind of always been in our lives, even that's been passed down to us in like recent generations are these, you know, Walter Cronkite's and Dan Rather's and the, the, the major news stations that Jamie referenced that are like the standard bearer for a quote unquote objective news. But you were right to point out and he expounded on for the vast majority of early American history, that wasn't the case. And now it's, it's, it's now more diffused because there's so many different ways in which people get information. And that's, it's dangerous in a lot of ways. And I I think that that was interesting because he, he at once like recognized that this isn't some new phenomenon that people like to create it. Like this is like all, all of a sudden, like sometimes people like to be like, whether it's the rise of Trump or social media or whatever kind of boogeyman you want to pin it on. It's like, this never existed before. <laughs> so like, this has always existed. There's always been disinformation. Presidents have always lied. There have always been partisan press. And, and so like in that sense, you're like, okay, we've weathered similar stuff to this before. But I think that he also on that same other side of the same coin, he's kind of like, well, it is uh, an un- a very uncertain time now. And while we can point to we weathered storms like this a hundred years ago, 150 years ago, 200 years ago. There's no one alive that's really dealt with issues like this. And so no one really knows how to go. And even for someone who's devoted his whole adult life to the media and reporting and information, he openly admitted, he was like, I don't know what's going to happen. And that uncertainty is always 
a little bit frightening, as he said, at trying to hold a democracy together when you can't agree on, on basic facts. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think one thing as particularly about that segment that struck me as interesting is that, you know, before when media was uh, explicitly subjective yeah. in that different parties and subsections of parties had their own newspapers, it was it was almost as if that was like easier to wade through because you knew who you were going to to get exactly what perspective you were expecting to get. And now you have news organizations who purport to be objective, but and uh, purport to be telling you the whole story, but are consistently leaving out information that leads you to only one conclusion. But you don't know what they're leaving out. Whereas, like if if you know kind of the story that they're trying to tell. And now like, whatever you have your MSNBCs and you know that you can go there for kind of your straightforward left, left yeah. leaning talking points. And you can go to Fox news for whatever, whatever you go to Fox news for. And it is, it's, it's almost harder. And yeah. And I, and I, I, I guess I never really saw that as the reason that people were turning to folks like Joe Rogan, but that is, I think in a nutshell, like a very succinct way of what's going on. Like he's speaking to them in a way that makes them feel like at least his interviews are just telling, or, you know, they're just asking questions. There's no agenda. Um, which like, if he has an agenda, like good luck figuring it out kind of thing. Um, and I, and I think, I think that's interesting, but like you said, definitely very dangerous because he has like even fewer sort of like journalistic whatever uh mores to to tether him to like anything and so yeah like fact checking even fewer and far between in those in those kind of instances and, and it's yeah one and sort of guilty by errors of omission and the other maybe just through ignorance but it doesn't leave for a more sort of informed or educated populace, just one that's just like dealing on different planes of reality. Yeah. And so I co-sign, retweet everything you just said. But I think one thing that now I'm thinking of that he said was he wasn't, I felt like, as worried about the the kind of the diffusion of media in general, more about how the diffusion of media leads to people not being able to be civil with each other. And I think that's really that's where I totally agree. Like the crux of it is that like we as a society have lived with partisan press before we have lived with corrupt governments before because for whatever reasons we have basic senses of decency or basic, we agreed on some basic ties that help hold us together. And those seem to be fraying more. And maybe this is just, I'm in the moment. I didn't live in 1855 when all this stuff was going down too. So maybe again, I have no idea what I'm talking about, but it, it just feels like that what he was pointing to, like, what are you most worried about was not necessarily the diffusion of media. I think he's like, all right, I don't know what's going to happen. It could be bad, but it could end up you know, being okay. But where, what am I really worried about is, is the ability for people to talk to each other and to accept people even who have, different opinions than you and I, I mean that, that's a drum that we've been beating for a while and certainly something close to our hearts but I thought that was maybe a, a subtle difference in what he was saying but an important one is like all right if we recognize that our media reality these days is a diffused media the partisan media okay there might not be the going back to how it was in 1960 but how do we still continue to exist as a people, as, uh, as Americans, as a democracy, even in this age of the media that we have? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and sort of his like the, the next problem that society faces is kind of this like fracturing of, okay, now states don't accept the rules of the federal government and potentially cities within those states don't accept the rules of the states and now we have like a real kind of a situation on our hands in terms of like how are we kind of going to collectively keep this thing from like falling apart and um yeah i mean for somebody who is sort of steeped in 
the history of like the Cold War um, and and sort of historical understandings of the Civil War, like he talked about, yeah, not one where he was worried about people taking up arms, although in a country with as many guns as we have, I'd be surprised that that's not also on the on the list of worries, but like this sort of fracturing of our, yeah, like the union is, is I, I guess one that I'd never like followed the dominoes kind of that far down the road, but you could definitely see, you know, with cities already claiming that they're going to sort of be, you know, with kind of what's going on in Roe v. Wade, right? Like cities claiming that they're going to be sanctuary cities against that sort of the regulations of their states or neighboring states trying to do this kind of stuff. I think it's, it, yeah, it's, it's heavy, but in a weird way, he sort of still struck that optimistic tone in terms of like the long arc of history is still heading in the right direction. Love when we end with little optimism. <laughs> Got to. Got to. All right. Well, I don't think I can say enough thanks to to Jamie for his time. We again, we hope that people enjoyed hearing his perspectives on things. Go go read him. Go buy his book, his books, go look him up and read some of his articles. You know, we both Ricky and I referenced a couple that they're they're worth the read. He's a really he's a really smart, really interesting guy and couldn't be more grateful that that he joined us yeah and i guess maybe just a quick plug to one of his articles that i think really just came out of research from his book um it's in the washington post uh as of maybe like a month ago called how world war ii led to washington's first outing a wild tale of nazi spies a brooklyn brothel and the private life of a senator and it's it's a yeah a fascinating read um and i'm sure a great teaser for the for the novel itself and um yeah we're we're super pumped to have uh, perhaps our biggest uh most famous guest to date uh, no offense to you jeff uh, <laughs> I'd rather have you on that one um but uh yeah i guess until until next time till next time buddy see ya We stay up all night on Garner Avenue Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads, running around till we forget where it was we began Some mornings you were away, some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find In a case of lion's hands And folks of different minds Because even though we did not share The pains we share That American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill, quiet truth is better than a rain. Somewhere along the line, we seem to have forgotten the values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, the morning let your ego bruise, but what I wouldn't give for the Hope I used to find in a, a case of lion's head And folks of different minds Because though we didn't share Opinions we share loud American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz I need an early morning buzz There's hope behind the bluster Cause though Main Street may not sell Full of folks just like you and me When we have trouble seeing The human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree 
Some days you win, some days you leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for hope I used to find and chase the lies head. Folks are different mind because though we did not share opinions we share on that American ideal. Friends made all arguments and an early morning buzz. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lies head. Folks are different mind because though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.